Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, story by story, president by president. You guessed it, folks. This week, we have none other than the John Adams to the 3252. Mr. Jimmy Lopez is going to be joining us, the former president of the 3252 and the current manager of brand and community at LAFC. He's going to be joining us for news and notes as well as the interview section. We are ecstatic to have Jimmy on the show today. Our opponent correspondent rejoining us this week for the San Jose Earthquakes is going to be once again Jamin Moore at Jamin Moore from Quakes Epicenter and the American Soccer Analysis. So Quakes Epicenter going to be representing once again as we preview the match coming up this weekend. But first and foremost, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Christopher Sines and Christian Aparicio. Gentlemen, good evening. How are we doing tonight? Good day. Looking forward to the match this weekend and uh, again still waiting for LAFC to uh, right the ship and uh, you know carry themselves into the playoffs with the momentum and I'm still holding out for it I'm still positive still waiting for it and looking forward to this weekend's match against San Jose. I'm on a better boon now that I get to talk to both of you and Jimmy here there soon just because I also need to get some things off my chest right team still not performing where we think they can or we've seen glimpses of but happy to see y'all's phases at this point. Well, with that, why don't we go ahead and introduce the fourth member of today's show. You, of course, know him as the former president of the 3252 and currently a manager of brand and community with the front office. Please welcome Mr. Jimmy Lopez. Hello. Hello, party people. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. We know this is an interview that we have been chasing you down for for many, many years. You were an incredibly busy man. And now that you've taken on a bigger role within the club itself, we sincerely appreciate you carving out this time to be with us today. It means a lot to us, sir. No problem. I'm glad I'm finally here. Every year, there's always been something in scheduling, but I'm here. I'm excited. Let's do it. Yeah, you know, I think it's a trend. We had Joseph come on after he was no longer the president, and it was more of like a recap of his term and what he liked and his takeaways and what he felt he left behind. And I think that this is just going to how we end up trending is we'll just get them you know, so we'll get Casey after he's done, you know, and we'll just have him come on and be like, hey, man, tell us about your term, what you liked, you know, what you felt you left behind. And so, you know, I'm I'm cool, you know, as long as we get the interview at some point. Right. You hear that, Casey? You are on the clock, sir. So uh, talk to me. And uh, what the two years, three years? I, I mean, I should know that. But either way, Casey, you're on in two years, buddy. It makes sense, right? Because presidency is a big commitment in terms of time, energy and 30 to 52 reason it's it functions in the way it does it's tremendous leadership organization so jimmy there's no worries here why you couldn't make it before and now that you have a little bit more free time more than welcome to have you on and casey you heard that invitation in a couple years well with that gentlemen why don't we run through what's going on in the world of lafc real quick before we deep dive into mr lopez itself here so first things first since our last recording we had a wee bit of a game down in carson you guys may have paid attention might have seen this might have been there wow what an atmosphere what a game it had a little bit of everything in it from shenanigans on the field off the field referee decisions crazy goals everything you could ask for in a derby except an lafc win so why don't we run down the table chris we'll go ahead and start with you why don't you just kind of give us your your thoughts now a week removed from our derby Okay, so I thought that the first half of that derby was entertaining. The second half was forgettable. We came out within at the 11th minute. Mamadou Fall comes in, 
gets a goal off a header. And, you know, some of the things we've trended within 10 minutes, we give up a goal. And then that's the end of the scoring for the rest of the game. You know, I think that the atmosphere was electric, especially when you look at how the 3252 was able to have their 650 supporters come in and take over that whole second tier section right adjacent to the Angel City Brigade section for the uh, Galaxy. And it was just drowning them out. I was sitting on the opposite side of the pitch, diagonal side of the pitch, and I could clearly hear the 3252 over either supporter group that the Galaxy had. And that's just a testament to the unity that we have with our traveling fans. So, you know, it's disappointing. I felt like you saw, I was hopeful at the beginning in the first half. And then it just seemed like we came out flat and we weren't aggressive enough in the second half. And we walked away with a tie. And uh, then also there was the black eye on the fighting that ended up happening inside the stadium after the match had concluded. I was walking out that way right there behind Angel City Brigade going out to my car two or three minutes before that fight started, you know, and that would have been a really unfortunate thing to be around if I had, you know, with my two sons and my wife and things like that. Like it's, you know, I don't want to put anybody in any kind of a situation where they're exposed to getting hurt or just getting caught in a shuffle. And it's just, it's a bit of a shame. And I felt like the security wasn't as strong as it should have been. You know, when I was walking behind that section with the Angel City Brigade, there was no security preventing any LAFC fan from going into that section. And there was LAFC fans wearing LAFC gear standing there watching the match like on the top platform. And it just seems like that was just a issue waiting to happen. And sure enough, a few minutes later, there's some fighting that kicks off. You know, it just made me think that like when we have derby matches at the bank, there's no Galaxy fan that's ever allowed to walk over into the north end like that's just it doesn't happen and i you know it just seems like it was a poorly planned and executed security plan you know look while you're on the subject we might as well talk about that and we'll circle back to the game because you know i just want to first and foremost state the 3252 and the traveling away support that shows up on buses arrives before anyone else is led into the stadium cordoned off in our own little area we wait till everyone leaves the stadium before those people are led out so Important to know that this was not our active support that was involved in these incidents. These were other fans who picked up regular tickets and showed up to the game. We've said it on this show before. We said it in our Galaxy preview episode on our last episode. We encouraged everyone to be extremely safe, to make smart decisions, to keep their drinking to a recreational amount, and to not go picking fights with other supporters. Obviously, Some folks out there did not listen to our kind advice and situations escalate like this. And it's disappointing. And I would really, really like to get to a point where the logistical operations of Dignity Health Sports Park, sorry, I almost called it StubHub Center, that that Dignity Health Sports Park really begins to understand exactly the situation that they are putting the random fan in that may not have the information provided by the club or the supporters groups or shows like ours that you know, just showed up to a game and didn't realize that they couldn't go through that exit. And, you know, there has to be some better attention paid on behalf of their stadium. And in order to keep every fan safe, both ours and theirs, you know, and hats off to the folks at Bank of California Stadium. They have really gone a long way to mitigate issues at the bank. Has it been without incident? No. Will we ever probably have a match between these two teams without incident? Probably not. But this show will continue to be a platform that advocates peaceful yet vibrant active support and we would really really hope that both franchises take the necessary steps 
to encourage a lively but safe atmosphere. Sorry to step in on that, but Christian, go ahead. Give us your thoughts on the game. And, and if you want to touch on any of the extracurriculars, by all means. Yeah, I'll briefly touch on it. The only thing I'll say is it seems like the two front offices are starting to collaborate more in terms of allowing more supporters, right? Um, this was the largest allowed section to, to take part of the 30 to 52 before like we took over that first ever match. And then we were kind of mitigated to the hundred each. And it was like this weird kind of unspoken agreement that we're not going to go past the MLS minimum. So I'm glad that's the first step. I think the next step is just speaking about logistics and security. I think the LAFC front office has done a good job of learning from each match and just increasing the security, mitigating. I know that when there are derby matches at LAFC, you can't even go around the whole stadium. Usually like you, you walk around, right? Because that whole little corner is kind of quarantined off and only Carson Galaxy fans can go up into that section. So I think that they need to learn from that because even though there's a lot of sheriffs there, I think once it becomes kind of a mob or everyone's going towards the same direction, a line of sheriffs are not going to stop that. That should be kind of what I see in the EPL and different Europe, different sects of Europe where that like man wall is created during before, before, during and after matches. So that's what I'll say about that. In terms of the actual match, if we go back to pregame, right, that was the day Landon Donovan's statue was erected or unveiled or whatever. And good for him, you know, U.S. men's national team legend. He did a lot for the club. I don't think they did the best job in terms of his face, unfortunately. Most of the other things looked similar to him, but his face, I think, could have done better and spending a lot of money, aging money. I think they hopefully they kept the receipt to, to try to try to fix that. Dude, let, let's be honest, man. That face is straight nightmare fuel. All right. It looks nothing like him. It's like some kind of screaming zombie face. And I have no idea how like a, an artist says, yeah, this will work. And then B like someone signs off on a design or, or even gets to the point where a statue like that is erected. I think is creepy and they done Donovan wrong. You know, not that, we particularly care about it as a fan base, but that thing's creepy looking. Let's be honest. You're being far too kind. Unfair to him. I hopefully he gets, you know, that treatment that Ronaldo at the airport all of a sudden months later it was unveiled and it looked more like him just for his sake. Poor guy. I mean, like I said, I'm a U.S. men's national team supporter. And I do like the things that he did for us as a country. He, he chose the wrong team or the wrong the right team didn't exist when he was playing unfortunately. In terms of the game, I will say I agree with a lot of things that Chris said. I just, you know, we, we still lack quality in the final third because of injuries. We don't have the types of players. I did like the intensity. Um, it did get chippy at times, but we matched it. It was just one moment of lack of focus defensively in the midfield that led into that through pass that allowed them to equalize. And after that, both teams had chances and they squandered them. So was a tie potentially fair? Maybe. Did we have better chances and we have a penalty that wasn't called? Of course. And that's what's unfortunate about this game. Even with VAR, I still don't understand where it wasn't seen as a clear and obvious error when he gets to the ball first, Chicharango, before the keeper, and he gets kicked. And just, I don't know, it seemed clear as day in, on TV. I was I would hope that, you know, we, we had the right referee to be able to manage a match of this stature within the MLS. And we did not. And then even the MLS uh, review booth, VAR booth, did not do their job. So that's one of my qualms about this match. It seems like there's always one glaring error in this derby. And that's my only qualm with, with the match. Other than that, I think we did show heart. 
we did what we could. We hit the post. We didn't get some calls that I think would have changed the game for us. And we're here in the situation where the last six games, or I called it in the last show, it's kind of bumper cars. Everyone's playing each other. So it's hard to really say at this point. To me, it's a coin flip because Vancouver, RSL, the Galaxy are all have a crazy run in at the end. And I really can't tell who's really going to get the the points that will manage to get into the playoffs in the end. All right. So, Jimmy, we know that now that you work for the club, obviously you this was your first away game at Carson in a new role with Brandon Community. So we know that you were deeply, deeply involved in all of the 3252's previous trips down to Carson. So maybe since there are certain things you have to touch on and can't touch on, why don't you tell us just how the experience was different for you now that you're a member of the front office? It was completely different. Just like even when I was within the realms of the 352, never watch a match because I was coupling. Now with this, dealing with all security issues, couldn't watch a match. So I don't have much to say about the match, but security wise, I do agree at that stadium. They do need uh, to improve a lot and learn a lot from LAFC. They did hire some of the LAFC security to monitor D3252. That way, familiar faces can help resolve any issues. And it worked to an extent. Like you said, there's always going to be something. With me coming on this side, it helped because I can, well, Albert and I, Albert was key and stopping and preventing a lot of issues from popping off was our forte that day because we know who are the troublemakers in essence and we'd be like watch that guy and then right away grab him and it, it helped because it could it could have gone a lot worse but it's one of those matches where it's going to be insane no matter who's there but overall our job was to get everybody off the bus into the stands and back safely we did that so we're good on our end yeah, every single person who got on a bus to head down there got on a bus to head back, right? No one ended up not making the bus ride back. So job well done. I have to say I was in, in the very back row of the 3252. And there were many times that as I was trying to keep an eye on the things going on in front of me, I'd look down and I would see you there, you know, playing half supporter relation, half bodyguard, man, as you're down there kind of keeping an eye on the walkways around the 3252. So hats off to you for doing the yeoman work. It was not unnoticed, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you. And what, um, what a good first match. <laughs> yeah, uh, awkward game on the pitch. Uh, we should have had a penalty. Truth be told, there's a very real chance that we didn't finish that game with 11 players, right? Uh, I mean, Edwards could have very easily have been shown a red card. I really think the second foul he committed was a yellow card foul. I'm not so convinced the first foul in which he was given a yellow card for originally was really a yellow card foul. That that play happened right in front of the 3252, and it certainly looked like there was some embellishment going on. So I wonder if the second yellow didn't show up because somebody got in the referee's ear and said, hey, look, you were a little harsh on that first yellow. You know, maybe he just didn't want to be the one to decide the game in that manner. But at that point in the game, I think that was only 30, 35 minutes into the game. If we go down a man, we're looking at a very, very different result. So it's hard to say, oh, well, well, we should have had a penalty. We should have had a penalty. And, and frankly, we probably should have. I think, you know, maybe in the referee's defense, as he touches the ball away from the keeper, it, it was going out of bounds so much that they didn't really think, you know, the goalie got enough of him to dissuade him. I mean, it kind of looked like he kicked the ball out of bounds before the tackle comes in. I, I could see them taking that opinion that the ball has to be playable in order for it to be a penalty. So look, it giveth and it taketh away with regards to the ref. You got to go out there and put away the opportunities. 
Once again, LAFC did not put away the opportunities. And frankly, to our benefit, Carson had a couple really big opportunities as well, too, that both hit off the post. So, you know, still don't feel very strong about our goalkeeping situation as a result of this game. Still feel like there are some pieces within the LAFC team that have been putting in detrimental performances. People like Raheem Edwards that came very close to costing us that game with that foul. There's no way we go down a man for 60 minutes and don't end up walking away with an L in that game. So, you know, it was a weird game. It was a chippy game. It was an ugly game. But LAFC do come away with it with one point. So it's not as though it ends our season. We are still statistically possible to make our way into the playoffs. And a lot of that is going to hinge on our upcoming conversations about our next match versus San Jose Earthquakes. Around the world of community notes, Latif Blessing is going to be partnering up with our friends at Global Diplomatic for an event upcoming. Chris, you have some insight on that you want to go ahead and share with the listeners. Absolutely. For those of you that don't know, Global Diplomatic is one of the very popular community relations of teams that goes out and they give back to orphanages and low-income communities. So on Sunday, October 24th, there is an event going on at Lab 5 in Pacoima, which is a, a soccer facility in Pacoima, and you have an opportunity to meet Latif Blessing and learn some drills and exercises that helped make Latif the player that he is today. They have the different ages at different times, so if you were to register a two- to five-year-old, it's from one to two. A six to 10 year old is from two to three. And then an 11 to 15 year old is from 3.30 to 4.30. Registration is $25. If you would like to get one of the shirts, it's a $35 registration with the with the shirt. That money is going to go. And also it's going to help Latif. You know, Latif has his, his own foundation that he has that uh, it goes and helps out the communities in his home country of uh, Ghana. So I think the the Ghanaian project he has is called Share the Blessing. And I believe this money is going to try and help build an artificial turf for them to play on. Last charity he did was trying to get old kits and boots and, and all that kind of gear out to the kids so that they could have something to play in. And this next effort is trying to find them something to be able to play on. So really cool opportunity to get out and get a chance to meet Latif. If you have a youth player in your household, you're going to get a chance to go out and get in-game tips from the star man himself, all for a very, very worthy cause in helping out his Ghanaian village in order to try and build uh, an LAFC pitch over in Ghana, something we would all love to see happen. So please, if you get a chance, uh, you can pop over to our social media, Latif social media, Global Diplomatic social media. I'm sure you guys have seen it popping around by now, but a really, really cool opportunity coming up. So please, please, please jump on that. Speaking of opportunities, right before we jump into our opponent correspondence segment, and then we start digging into this upcoming San Jose match, you just want to let everybody know real quick coming up this Sunday, my broadcast partner with the Ontario Fury, Christian Philly Philemon. You might know Philly from Defenders of the Bank fame. Uh, he and I have actually been hired by a company called ColorCast. Uh, ColorCast is an app that does alternative broadcasts for major sporting events. And he and I are actually going to be calling the Hudson Derby this weekend. So if you get a chance, you can download ColorCast's app. You can tune in this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as Philly and I are going to be calling NYC FC versus the New York Red Bulls. So a really, really fun new step for Philly and I in our broadcasting career. 
And for any of you out there who get a chance and want to go ahead and tune in, you can listen to us call a Hudson River Derby this weekend. Really, really looking forward to getting a chance to cut our chops on an MLS game. Hopefully you guys get a chance to tune in. Thank you for letting me plug myself there for just a moment. Hopefully you guys can come out and support two members of the black and gold community as we try and take that next step in our careers here within the soccer world. So thank you guys so much. With that, we're going to go ahead and take our first break and we'll be right back with our opponent correspondent for the San Jose Earthquakes, Mr. Jamin Moore. Again, Jamin joins us from Quakes Epicenter and he is a member of the American Soccer Analysis and we'll be right back with Jamin after this. Hey, it's Kevin Frazier from Entertainment Tonight. And listen, I am an LAFC super fan. So I always make sure I download and listen to Shoulder to Shoulder podcasts. They keep me updated. But more importantly, I get to listen to these dudes' opinions about the team I love the most. Keep doing your thing, guys. Rejoining us this week is our opponent correspondent for the San Jose Earthquakes. You know him from Quakes Epicenter and American Soccer Analysis. Welcome back to the show, Jamin Moore. Thanks, guys. It's uh, good to be back and uh, excited to also meet you, Jonathan. Yeah, this is, you know, first introduction, right, with Jonathan. But uh, so Jonathan is one third of the show. And, uh, you know, we just when we do these opponent correspondence, we try to have as many of us on as possible, but uh, with scheduling conflicts and what have you. But uh, we appreciate you meeting with us tonight. And, you know, we're looking forward to the match this weekend. I think that we're both of our clubs are are looking to get three points out of the match. We both desperately need it, especially with San Jose currently one point behind LAFC in the rankings. Uh, LAFC is in eighth place and San Jose is in ninth. And we both are definitely looking for these three points. Yeah, it you know, it, uh, it was a big win for the Earthquakes always to beat any L.A. team is always a big big deal in San Jose, right? And for some odd reason, you know, uh, Bob's gotten the better of Matias for, you know, the first couple of years of this rivalry. But ever since Jackson Ewell scored that stoppage time winner down in LAFC in an empty stadium game last year, it's gone completely the other direction now. And I, I think the Quakes have won at least three, maybe, maybe even four straight. Four straight. Thank you, Jonathan. So yeah, that's quite interesting to me because, you know, I still feel like LAFC is one of the premier teams in the league. And I know they've you know, had a bit of hard times. We talked about that a little bit in the last episode too, Chris, but it's never something to take for granted uh, when the Quakes go up against LAFC for sure. It has been an interesting tale of the tape between these two teams as LAFC took each of the first five matches, outscoring them like 20 to two in those five matches and then have turned around and lost four straight going into this game. So an interesting little tidbit we'll dive into in just a second here. But Mr. Moore, if if you would real quick for our listeners, if you could just remind anyone who may have missed the last episode you were on with us, tell us a little bit about Quake's Epicenter and the American Soccer Analysis. Yeah, so Quake's Epicenter is a site, you know, obviously dedicated to the San Jose Earthquakes, independent coverage completely. We have a couple of our people are part of the media team that covers the team and gets to be able to talk to Matias Almeida and uh, and members of the team in the weekly and post-game press conferences. We also have a post-game show. LAFC fans are more than welcome to attend. We can't say that we'll be necessarily nice in what we say, but I do try to be very objective and provide, you know, more analysis-based opinions. And we have that after every single game at on YouTube at, uh, at basically youtube.com slash Quakes Epicenter. The show is called The Aftershock. And uh, we cover the uh, the press conference on that as well as provide our analysis of the match. And uh, we have the, uh, the the highlight of the show is always the fans and the banter that that goes on 
you know, on the side while we're all giving our opinions and they're jumping in with, with all their comments as well. Sometimes it can get a little bit unruly, particularly after bad losses. So, uh, it, but it's always a good time and we enjoy doing that. American Soccer Analysis, I'm, uh, I do some writing for them. I'm currently doing a series along with Carl Carpenter from StatsBomb called Where Goals Come From. It's been a very well-received series. It's actually more directed at coaches, club analysts, and even front offices, and basically really kind of uh, trying to shine a light on things about the sport that I think a lot of people don't understand well, or, you know, basically you just kind of grew up understanding soccer a certain way. We try to shine a light on the real probabilities around the sport and particularly around how goals are scored. And one of the reasons I respect LAFC so much is because ever since they came into the league, Honestly, I feel like they've done things the right way. They really look for those high value chances. Bob really understands these things extremely well. And honestly, every single time I'm going to look for a highlight for a particular type of pass, that's the high value pass. LAFC is always in, in the highlights that I have to pick from. So since we've played our last match, San Jose has lost two straight to Seattle and Vancouver, allowing six goals, three per game, scoring just the one versus Vancouver. So since your last appearance on the show, why don't you go ahead and update our listeners on sort of the state of the union for the Quakes? Yeah, it's been been obviously very disappointing. I think after getting a one nothing win up in Seattle, the fans had a good right to feel that coming off of back-to-back wins, you know, there was a, still a good chance this team could make the playoffs and They would start with uh, winning against the Sounders and repeating the performance that they had up at Lumen Field. And unfortunately, you know, the Sounders brought their best quality and and really didn't even have some of their best players. But I think we all know how dangerous that particular team can be, a very potent offense. And I think kind of shocked the Quakes. They didn't really execute a good game plan in that game, gave way too much space to the Sounders. In some ways, I think respected them too much and paid the price for it. And then you know, coming off of that loss, they had the ability to do a quick riding of the ship, fighting for with Vancouver over the seventh playoff spot, and just went up and laid an egg in Vancouver. Uh, they just didn't look prepared. I didn't know what was going on with the man marking. Matias, after the match, said he was they weren't even trying to do man marking. I couldn't even tell. It wasn't clear what they were trying to do. It's been kind of a bit of a mess since then. But then the Quakes turn around and make international news with a friendly against Cruz Azul, where they uh, they, they won 2-0. Yes, and that that's was, right. That was, that the was sub, huge. The subplot was that they, they beat the Mexican champions, right? What actually made international news was that there was a pitch invader, and Chris Wondolowski, and actually the pitch invader got to Jack Scahan and punched him, and Chris Wondolowski took the dude down in a headlock, and this got all over the place, including we saw it appear in the UK on the Daily Mail and everything. So, yeah, pretty, pretty big, big deal for the San Jose Earthquakes for all the wrong reasons, making uh, headlines there. And then only to find out, too, there was a shooting and other fights in the parking lot and hospitalizations after the game. And, and it's just I do have some concerns about this whole Nations League thing that they've announced, because it does seem like, like every time MLS and La Liga fans get together, you know, fireworks happen and they're not good. Hopefully they can get this ship righted and, and uh, work on the security aspects of these games because certainly, you know, these are going to be very tense affairs once they yeah, get Yeah, of course, with regards to Liga MX, we have you know, the person who sadly lost their life in Philadelphia with, I believe it was versus Club America. So 
you know, I think we've touched on this on this show previously, the need to see some logistical improvement in security, especially with matches where fan bases have been known to get back and forth with one another and uh, disappointing to see. I do have to say I participated in a charity football match when LAFC came up to play San Jose last time. I was about the world's worst keeper in that game, but my experience with uh, the folks from Epicentro was really positive. A lot of really nice people in that SG, and I'm, I'm happy to see the direction the San Jose supporters are going with regards to building the greater MLS community there. So I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with uh, let's try and see an end to all of this yeah, nonsense. And, and by the way, I think you bring up a good point because our supporters groups did get together, and I believe they did, did a bit of a fundraiser uh, together at at that at the last game that was up in San Jose and and despite the rivalry between the teams you know the uh the supporters groups in MLS do a really good job in trying to find ways to be able to to work together they stick up for each other you know and when you know an FO comes down hard and says no we're not going to you know let let you into our stadium or whatever doesn't uh, don't won't sell the tickets to them you know they actually do the work to tell the front office look without the supporters without the rivalry you don't get the atmosphere that these games deserve and uh, you know i think it's really important that we establish that type of culture in mls and, and that we establish that type of culture hopefully going forward also with the league mx supporters yeah hats off to the folks at global diplomatic and football who orchestrated that event it was a pleasure to take part in it i know we have some members of san jose supporter groups coming down for the game coming up this saturday 12 30 p.m and there should be a little charity action going on this weekend down here in the southland as well too so some fantastic stuff to see with regards to our last match between these two clubs we know last time we were up there in the south bay LAFC took a 2-0 loss. San Jose able to find the back of the net early in both halves. I'm curious with your brilliant analytical mind, if you can kind of break down for us what happened early on in those games and what was the key to San Jose being able to come out of the locker room and score? Yeah, so, you know, let me let me actually go back real quick because it's been, been a little bit here and make sure that I got the right details. We've had a couple of games since then. But one of the key things in this game was, I mean, without a doubt, and, and I believe we, we talked with him, talked about him on the previous show was Chofis Lopez, right? He was magic in that particular game, both in the through ball that he played to Benji Kukanovic, as well as, you know, his own goal uh, in the 47th minute. And I think uh, we had just been talking about it the week before. I, I, I want to say that we maybe even mentioned it on this show. Benji Kukanovic is probably as fast as Cade Cowell, and nobody knows that the boy is 6'1", so he's big. He's got a ton of talent. He's got soccer skills that Cade is still acquiring, to be quite honest, although not quite as athletic as Cade. But you could see when he scored that goal in the third minute, I mean, he just turned the afterburners on and uh, finished that uh, with ease around the keeper. And then, you know, Chofis Lopez has been the story, you know, offensively, I would say, at least for the San Jose Earthquakes this season. He's uh, all of a sudden, you know, had gone on a big run of games, a lot of Talk about him maybe even uh, making the national team with El Tree uh, in this uh, last cycle here. Uh, it didn't quite happen, but there was a lot of noise about it again. Uh, he certainly was was on a tear, has slowed down over those last couple of games. Quakes fans certainly will want to see if he can pick that back up again. I think he had the hat trick of the season. I think it was either the game before or maybe two games before our last meeting. I mean, he had an absolutely sensational hat trick in that match. Uh, highlight reel screamers for sure. All right. So if you could do me a favor here and put yourself in Bob's shoes. 
and looking at what LAFC is going to be bringing to the table, what would you try and do to break down this earthquakes team? The thing that the earthquakes always have trouble with because of the man marking, and, and by the way, you know, Matias Almeida may decide to not go with this strict man marking. It is something that he has toyed around with. In fact, in the last game against Vancouver, he actually kind of turned, turned it off a bit and it didn't go well. But most of the time he's dialed it back this season, it actually has gone well. It'll be interesting to see if he sticks with it. But let's say if the Quakes do play the traditional man marking, one of the things that I know Bob knows is that if you can get the Quakes a bit spread out with that 1v1 defending, and you can look for the types of third mans that LAFC is very capable of being able to pull off, one of the best ways to be able to get in behind their line, the man marking, because once the movement gets really quick from the offensive side, it's harder for them to be able to keep the marks. The more that movement happens, the more off the ball movement there is. Typically, the better uh, time teams have playing against the Quakes. Now, the Quakes have, or Matias specifically, over the past year or so, has countered that a bit with sitting in a little bit deeper at times, going a little bit more zonal you know, trying to, to make it so that, you know, they don't get caught too much in those situations, but they do still tend to happen. I think the thing from Bob is going to be reading very early. What are the quakes doing here? What are their pressing triggers? Where are they allowing players to, to come out? Who is the free defender? Um, if they're man marking and, you know, what kind of space are they covering? And all those types of things, you know, I, I think by now Bob knows to look for, you know, last time the quakes uh, played LAFC, LAFC didn't really bring a potent attack. Too many injuries, too many things, just not in LAFC's favor in terms of the lineup. You know, hopefully we'll see a, a more even matchup, and that'll be a better test, I think, for the earthquakes at, uh, at the bank. When you are looking at the remaining schedule for San Jose in the month of October, there is a 14-day period where the San Jose earthquakes are playing five matches. Is that a concern for you, making it into the playoffs? Yeah, 100%. I actually talked to Matias about this yesterday and I asked him, I said, you know, are you going to be throwing out your strongest lineup every single game? Where are you going to need to go heavy rotation? And, and I'll be honest, the reason I asked the question is because two years ago down the playoff stretch, he did virtually no rotation in 2019. And the Quakes lost like seven games to end the season and ended up out of the playoffs when at one point they were as high as third in the conference. So you know to me like this has been an area of growth for Matias as a coach to understand his team is not really able to do that kind of ask and be able to keep up with it over this type of compressed schedule. So expect to see some rotation. Jeremy Abobasi looks like he's back. He got some time against Cruz Azul. My guess is that they probably played another uh, closed door friendly this past week just to stay in shape. That's something he likes to do against one of the local USL teams or even their U23 team that they've, that they've put together in preparation for next year. And uh, he's probably trying to get Jeremy Abobasi fit. So I expect to see Jeremy Abobasi play. He may or may not start, but, you know, Benji Kakanovich and Jeremy Abobasi kind of switching on and off there throughout this kind of home stretch at the nine. Can they find some magic without Shofis Lopez? You know, Shofis is not a 90-minute guy game after game, and he's certainly not for, for five games straight over a two-week stretch. So you know, how do you deal with Shofis, you know, sitting is going to be a big question. Christian Espinoza on the right wing, always a potent uh, threat, I think does well, typically trying to get in behind LAFC when the outside backs bomb forward, which Bob likes to do. And Christian's had some joy getting in behind at times. So, you know, those are things that it's going to be important for Matias to kind of figure out 
where does he rotate, which players in which game. But my guess is that he's going to come full guns blazing in this first game and put it all on the line to see if they can get some points and stay in the hunt before he makes a decision what he does you know, on Wednesday night. Well, speaking of players returning from injury, all signs indicate that this will be Carlos Vela's return to the pitch for LAFC. We are anticipating a healthier Atuesta, a healthier Latif Blessing, a healthy Tristan Blackman joining the LAFC squad as well, too, to add some reinforcements by contrast to our last game against each other. So given those changes, do you see Almeida changing his approach to this game or doing something similarly to the last encounter? Well, so, you know, Almeida is kind of learning what it takes in order to play on the road this season, finally. In 2019, when he entered the league, he was very dogmatic about the way he played on the road. He didn't want to vary it any uh, from the way he played at home, and the Quakes just absolutely would get torched on the road. It's just a different environment in MLS. Home field advantage is a very real thing. You can try to analyze it all you want to. I certainly have, and, and I intend to write another article here for for uh, American Soccer Analysis in the next couple of weeks about some, some of the latest findings about that. But it's not related to attendance. It's not related to travel, the things that people always point to. It is related to the way that teams come in and, and the style in which they play and the way that, uh, you know, the home teams play on the front foot as compared to sitting back and, and such on the road. So Matias has gotten more pragmatic. I expect a bit of a different approach in this game, a little bit less front foot, but certainly looking for the opportunities when LAFC commits numbers forward. They're going to look to transition, transition quickly. They've got the pace up top. You've got Benji Kikanovic. You've got Christian Espinosa. You've got Cade Cowell. That's a lot of pace. I think of Matias is smart, and, and I think overall he typically is with this type of stuff. Um, I think you're going to see him try to utilize that when, when LAFC commits numbers forward. All right, so the big question, the elephant in the room, sir, do you think either of these teams are making the playoffs? Oh, man. I've been steadfast in saying LAFC should be a playoff team, and I've even been steadfast in saying that the Quakes should not be a playoff team, and that's largely because I do not think RSL should be a a playoff team, and I still have some questions about Vancouver, but they're proving me wrong with their latest midseason acquisitions. They've they've definitely improved quite a bit. And, you know, at this point, you know, could we see the Galaxy? Could we see RSL? Either one of those still fall out. It's possible. And, you know, if they do, LAFC, you know, probably is the team to, to squeak in. That's just my opinion. But the numbers, again, the underlying numbers on LAFC, are better than this team has been. And at some point, you know, even if it's this late in the season, you have to expect it'll it'll turn in LAFC's favor. Well, from your lips to God's ears, sir. We thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us this evening. Do you have any final thoughts for our fans on this upcoming match before we let you go tonight, sir? Nope, nothing, nothing big as far as that goes. If you're, again, interested, uh, tune in to uh, youtube.com slash Quakes Epicenter after the game for our post-game show where we will provide the analysis for the game and appreciate everyone who uh, who takes a look at our content or looks at my uh, Where Goals Come From series on American Soccer Analysis. Well, thank you, sir, so much for joining us. Once again, it's been Jamin Moore representing the San Jose Earthquakes and, of course, American Soccer Analysis as well, too. Thank you so much, sir. You have yourself a wonderful evening, and we'll be right back after this break with our interview with Jimmy Lopez, former president of the 3252. This is Bob Bradley, and you're listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. Once again, we would like to thank Jamin Moore for joining us to be our opponent correspondent this week. Jamin joined us, of course, from Quake's Epicenter and is a member of the American Soccer Analysis. All right, gentlemen, 
We've just heard Jamin's predictions for this weekend's upcoming match. So we know just to recap that we are going to be facing 10th placed San Jose. They're currently sitting at 8, 11, and 9 versus our 9th place LAFC, currently sitting at 9, 12, and 7. We know our last match just a few weeks ago was a 2-0 loss up in San Jose. So, gentlemen, I'm curious, what are we expecting in this Derby 2.0? We already know there are rumors of some new faces, and we are certainly hoping for some new results. So, first and foremost, I think we should probably kick it to the person who knows more about LAFC than anyone else on this podcast, our illustrious guests this evening, Mr. Jimmy Lopez. What are you looking for in this upcoming match versus San Jose? Three points. We just need three points. That's it. I don't care how we do it. I don't care who's on the pitch. We just need three points and three more after that, three more after that. Minnesota's a must win for us. But San Jose, if we hit the road, with these three points, I think we're solid. I can't help but agree more with, with Jimmy. I mean, it, we've been all saying this for the last couple of weeks, but it's now really coming down to crunch time. And to set off the right foot for the two away matches, we do. We need to have three points from the San Jose match. We can't. It's not going to be good enough to just walk away with a tie. We need to get our three points and start this off on the right foot. I think we need the luck of the RSL game where we got that magical own goal at the very minimum. But I agree. I think this this is time to put up or shut up, right? Defensively, we need to learn from the mistakes that we've been making basically all summer, it seems like all season. Stop giving up cheap goals or some cheap transitional goals. Matias Almeida's team now is more of a pragmatic version of the chaos they were doing at the earlier part of the season. And they have themselves an outside chance if they went out. So you know they're going to come with everything. And they've gotten a result this year against us. And their confidence is going to be higher than they usually are when they come to the bank. So the bank has been breached this year. So we need to, to kind of, you know, shut that down, score early, maintain possession, and then score often. We've, we've proven that we can do that like we did against KC, even with a quote-unquote B squad. So we're going to have more of the, the players that we need to perform. Also, I'm a little bit optimistic that hopefully Carlos is working himself into getting some minutes 10, 15 minutes, 20, whatever he can give us, uh, as long as he he can give us some magic and score because he just has a knack of being able to create plays or at least creating attention defensively from the opponent where it frees up Chicho, Rayito, or anyone else to be able to get into the box and, and, and score. So those are the things that I'm looking for, I'm hopeful for. I am optimistic, like I have been all season, that we'll get the three points. The team usually plays well, but there's just mistakes and missed opportunities that stop us from getting the three points game in and game out, but it's time to put up and shut up. Like I said, you're right. We should see Carlos Vela make his return in this match, at least for a a small number of minutes, uh, assuming there is no late setback. We should get a mostly healthy Atuesta, a mostly healthy blessing, a mostly healthy Blackman back. So I think, you know, look, this is the perfect time for all of these people who've been sidelined to start getting some minutes, start getting back in. There is no time for acclimation. It is three points and three points only that we need from this match if we are going to cling on to any hope of this season. We know we still have some tough games upcoming. You know, Seattle is not going to be an easy match. We're going to be facing a number of teams above us in the table right now. We really can only slip up in one match between now and the end of the season. 
I think we all see the Seattle match as being the match in which it would be most likely for us to have that slip up. So against the likes of the San Jose's, whenever you're playing a team, and I don't care if it's one place, but any team that is behind you in the standings, you have got to get it done. I think that is about enough said on that game. We are really looking forward to seeing you all at the bank this upcoming weekend. And hopefully we have some good news to talk about when we get back for our pod next week. But with that, we're going to go ahead and take our second break. And we will be right back with Mr. Jimmy Lopez. Hi, everybody. It's Max Prados, and you are listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast, second to none, bringing you the LAFC gospel. Folks, we have a very esteemed guest joining us this week. One of the architects of the 3252, a man who would be on the Mount Rushmore of the 3252 if we were to erect it this week. He is the John Adams of the 3252, the second president ever in its history following Mr. Joseph Zacker. He is, of course, an absolute legend, both on and off the pitch, who has now taken a new role as the manager of brand and community at LAFC. Please welcome back to the interview portion of the show. Jimmy Lopez. Hello, hello. You know, we had been trying to get you on for a long, long time. So I'm just really glad that we're finally getting an opportunity to sit down and talk with you. And I think that it is nice that now that your term as president has closed and another new opportunity within the LSU community has opened, that it's a, a nice way for you to kind of look back and give us your opinions on, on the things that you enjoyed most and what what stood out and what you know just an overall experience of what you felt it was like to be the president so i i I do like this format rather than getting you in the middle of a term you know definitely in the middle of the term there's so much going on my brain would be scrambled i wouldn't be able to say as much as i would like because there's always moving parts within the 3052 but now that i'm on this side i can take a look back reflect and look back with a smile even though there are a lot of uh things that we look back on and be like oh well that wasn't that great or the losses, like when we lost about ECL. Um, So yeah, just I'm here to look back and smile at what we've all built together. Well, speaking of looking back, why don't we go ahead and dial the clock all the way back to when the beautiful game enters your life. So can you take us through the story of how you fell in love with football? In the neighborhood, in the playgrounds, elementary school, like everybody would play. And I'd be the kid in jeans playing because I didn't know much about it. And I enjoyed it. And it was cheap that's what it came down to uh grew up in the inner city not having money to play a organized sport like american football or baseball soccer is when anybody has a ball all right let's get together we can play four on four we don't care as long as we have enough people to just play and then when i was about 10 i started working at the anaheim indoor swap meet for my friend's dad and they had uh indoor futsal so that's when i really started falling in love with it and playing with it playing with the ball like crazy and then that's where it began for me where i truly fell in love with the sport was playing futsal and now we're here. From futsal, how did it become where you became a fan of actually watching professional sports? TV back then, we didn't have the access to the amount of teams, channels here in the States. So did you find it easy to follow teams or was it just because you were playing futsal on the street in the playground that it kind of started and you had to wait till the MLS came? Uh, MLS came about when I was in middle school and I just wasn't drawn to it because all my friends, they were supporting the Mexican League. And I didn't care for all the politics, all the drama. Even as a kid, I was like, this is crazy. Like, you have families that don't get along because there's a Cruz Azul fan and then there's um, a rival or a Chivas America. And to me, that was crazy. I was like, okay. But then looking back, I was like, hmm, 
Angels Dodgers growing up in Anaheim. So then I, I understood it, but I just wasn't drawn to it because we didn't, in my household, nobody cared for the sport. So I didn't have anybody to watch it with. Up until late high school, I went to Little Harbor High School and we had an amazing program, won CIF, but nobody cared. But if the American football team won, they had a whole parade for it. And to me, that was backwards. I was like, wow, all right, whatever. And then I want to say college is when I started being able to watch it a lot more. And that's when I discovered Manchester United. It was the first team I watched. And then I was just like, all right, that's cool. I like it. That's my team. Dig the logo. I liked how they played it on the pitch. And I just, that was it. That was my introduction to uh, Manchester United, which was my first official team. And started playing it on ESPN2, I believe. That's when I could really watch it. But I would have to schedule my college courses around the, the schedule because it'd be like a noon game, sometimes a two o'clock game or early, early in the morning, which is like it is right now. But that was my introduction to watching it as a fan on television as opposed to playing it on the court or on the pitch. Which uh, uh, Man U players back then did you admire or drew you in once you did choose a team? I look at the players as what they brought to the team on the pitch, not their personal lives. So every time I say Ryan Giggs, people are like, oh, that guy's a dirtbag. I'm like, I don't know him personally, but I love what he brought to the team. I loved how he just controlled the pitch and he was selfless. He would rather give up the goal, get, 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 let somebody else score the goal and make sure it's there. His assists and everything. I just, I, I just loved how he played. So he was my, still to this day, like Ronaldo, I obviously love Ronaldo and then Wayne Rooney, but Giggs, every time he hit the pitch, Beckham, I caught the tail end of him because it was just like Giggs to me was a man. Beckham was what Ronaldo is today back then where everybody was just like, ooh, Ronaldo or Beckham, Beckham. And I was like, ah, but Ryan Giggs is putting in the work. Agreed. Ryan Giggs was my favorite from class of 96 all the way through when Ronaldo was there and then up to retired. But yeah, he was not the best person off the field. I agree with you on that. Every successful football team kind of needs that one guy that's just a terrible person but goes out there and gets the job done, right? I mean, I think you could point to almost every historic championship team, and they all had that one player that was maybe not the greatest of human beings, but a fantastic footballer. Totally. And then did that ever translate into the national team love? You said the MLS started here, right? The World Cup had just concluded. Then, you know, the U.S. was in the World Cup every year, except for this last World Cup. Did you prefer the U.S. versus Mexico? Since you said you are talking about some of the families that, uh, you were around not being able to get along because of Cruz Azul, America, Chivas, Pumas, what have you. Yeah, definitely. 94, obviously, World Cup was a big deal to the States. And I watched it. I enjoyed it. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm American. I'm going to, that's my team. I really started following and caring for it when the women's national team started playing. Being brought up by my mom and my sister, I just respect women so much that watching them play and the way they played and it was just beautiful. And I was like, ooh, that's my team right there. I do support the men's national team, but to me, the women, like they deserve so much more credit for what they, everything they've accomplished and how they've shaped the sport in the, in the United States, it will globally also, but they don't get the credit for it, which is a, is a total bummer. Hopefully things start changing soon uh, with ACFC coming on board and seeing what they're doing and seeing how the communities are rallying around their, their local teams that hopefully they finally get the recognition they deserve. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Black Army and where that friendship started? Black Army, it was, I was with my kids at Disneyland. They were, Miles was one and Riley was three. I was wearing a men's national team jersey 
And the president of the Black Army at that time was saw me and he's like, oh, hey, you have kids? He's like, you, you like soccer? And I was like, I love it. He's like, oh, where do you watch games? I was like, at home or wherever I can. And he's like, do you have an MLS team? I was like, no, nah, nah, I don't do MLS. He's like, oh, well, on Chivas, he was saying, I was like, oh, it's even worse. I'm not going to associate with Chivas. And he was like, just come to a match. We hung out because our kids were getting along in line four. It was Casey Jr., to be quite honest. And so I was like, all right, cool. I'll go to a match. I fell in love with the supporter culture over the team. So I started going to, I got season seats because they were like, she was just saying seats were under a hundred bucks. I would say about $89 for the season, which was like dirt cheap. You can spend that on dinner. So that's, that was my introduction to the MLS because I've always been fascinated with supporter culture, but then getting involved with the Black Army, I was just like, all right, community driven. They are anti-hate all around. I was like, all right, cool. And then the fact that my son at one started drumming, I was like, I'm in. So I got hooked with the culture, not the team. This is back in 2011. So we've heard this story many times from many different perspectives, but certainly not from yours. So why don't you take us through the fall of Chivas USA to the rise of LAFC and what that was like from your perspective as a supporter? Uh, From my perspective, I wasn't as affected as everybody else was. You ask Julio, he's going to be like, oh, it's one of the worst things of my life. He was like heavily invested. I asked Joseph, he was just like, that was, I was gutted. For me, I was like, as long as the Black Army stays together and still does good to the community, I'll be okay because there still will be teams. Soccer is not going to die. So I was like, all right, she was going to say, was, I can say wasn't really my team. I was more about the supporter culture. And that was just people were like, really? Why? And I was like, because I love people. I love giving back. I love doing anything I can to make our community better, whether it be Orange County, LA County, San Diego. I don't care. People need help. If we can help, let's do it. So I wasn't as gutted. I was just kind of like, oh, well, we're not going to hang out every weekend. That's when we started going to USC matches, UCLA matches, just anything we could in the community. And then we really heavily got invested into the street soccer because that was up and coming. And we could host an event, have it charity driven and still get together and play. So no, I wasn't gutted. Was I sad? I was like, yeah, I'm not going to see everybody every weekend. But we heard whispers that something better was going to come and. LAC came and delivered. So looking at it now, uh, you know, you had said that when Chivas USA, you were in love with the, the supporters and the culture and it wasn't necessarily. So what was it about LAFC that is different in the sense that now, you know, LAFC is your team and it's not just the culture and the supporters that draws you in? Bottom line, LAFC cares. Um, I know it's a business, but oh, beyond that, they do great for the community they came to us and said, we want to build a team around the community, around what you believe LA is. They listened. Ray today posted a picture of the first official meeting and there was about 20 of us there. And we discussed colors, crest and everything. And then I doubt they saved it, but everything on that whiteboard, if somebody has a picture of it, every idea that was pitched on there, you can see them in, in the stadium. And to me, that's like, all right, they, they did the research. They actually listened and they delivered. Absolutely amazing. I just look at those photos of the early conversations to hear all the things that they were asking us fans about of what we wanted to see in the stadium. And the fact that they've delivered on so many of those things is, is astounding. So why don't you go ahead and take us through being a Black Army and the inception of the 3252 and sort of for lack of a better words, your rise to power within the 3252 that culminated in you becoming our second ever president. It's all things that I did not ask for. It just 
people would be like, all right, you'd be the right person for this. And I'd been like, I mean, if you insist, I'll do it. Black Army, it would just, I just kept showing up. I just kept doing stuff. And then I would have, I was a Boy Scout. So I have a lot of great ideas when it comes to community service. And that was my forte. So it slowly started rising in ranks with the Black Army. And then um, when LAC came on board, that's when I, my voice was really heard within the organization because I was the one that was available. Like, oh, can you go to this? And I was, my kids are young enough where I could bring them and they could be entertained with the ball in the corner while we're having these big meetings with Gensler trying to design the stadium and whatnot. The whole journey, my kids have been in tow. When it came to the presidency, it was one of those things where Joseph was stepping down. He put in his, his time. I was approached by a few members from different SGs and they're like, would you want to do it? And originally I was like, no, I just want to be a couple. I want to have a good time. There's too much on my plate. After having many conversations and then talking to Cassie and she was just like, I think you'd be great at it. And I was like, all right, with your blessing, I'll run. And then I ran and was elected and it happened. So you touched on your better half right there, Cassie. One of everyone's absolute favorite moments in LAFC supporter history is, of course, the proposal. Now, being the only person not married on this podcast, Chris Christian, I don't know how y'all proposed to your respective wives, but Jimmy proposed to his wife in front of 20 plus thousand fans in front of a screaming bank of California Stadium. No pressure. Obviously, fairly confident she was going to say yes, not to get uh, rejected in front of uh, 20,000 people there. But go ahead and take us through that historic moment. It took a lot of planning and it was one of the best moments of my life. Like being in front of that many people, it doesn't affect me. It's just like second nature. I'm just so used to being a capo and just being around community service. You're used to having conversations with people watching you doing what you do. Cassie, on the other hand, hates it. She hates any attention. She'll dodge any. Has she been in your podcast yet? Because if she hasn't, she's dodging you. She dodges everything. And we work because she uh, likes- no, no disrespect to her, but we're pretty used to it from lots of different people. <laughs> yeah, she she's just not comfortable with that. So I was like, oh, let's be flag bearers. And she was just like, okay, um, that'd be cool. And then I was like, oh, I have to get interviewed, but you have to be next to me. So then I believe it was Ben Chi or Robbie. One of the two brought her over to me. And then they beforehand, they said, you have to, we want to get a sound bite. We want her to say yes. And I was like, okay, cool. So as I'm proposing, she's crying. And obviously she's saying yes, but without she hasn't verbalized it. So I was like, Cassie, yes or no? And then um, she said it. But then looking back at the video, I'm like, wow, I sound kind of rude. But I tried to get a sound bite for them. Um, no, kudos to the club, Rich, Kristen, uh, Lauren Terry. That was, I think, one of her first big assignments of the club. They were really good at help setting it up and organizing it. That morning, I actually woke up and I was telling Cassie, I don't feel good. I don't want to go to the game. She'd throw her off and it worked. I would say majority of the 32 knew what was going to happen. She had no clue. So it worked out. It was awesome. And many of my friends are kind of like, you ruined it for us because we can't top that. I'm like, it's not about topping it. It's about what's fit for your relationship. They're like, my wife wants to get that way or my fiance. So yeah, amazing experience. Ruined it for some of my friends, but whatever. I had a good time. And fast forward, congratulations. You are celebrating your second wedding anniversary this weekend. Uh, a beautiful LAFC wedding, so to speak. I mean, the Supporters Shield even made an appearance at your wedding, of all things. So you guys are truly, even if not in name anymore, still one of the first families of LAFC. And it was beautiful that not only you had that moment, 
But frankly, for all the rest of us that got to share in that moment with you, there is such a connection between the 3252 LAFC fans and your family. So thank you for for letting us all be a part of that. So I suppose after which you become president of the 3252, why don't we go ahead and sort of tackle some of the meat and potatoes of your presidency? Throughout the course of your terms, I wonder if you would look back for us and if you could reflect on what you think were your greatest accomplishments. And if you could go back and do some things differently or some things left on the table you would still like to have accomplished, if you could touch on both of those subjects for us. I don't look back and regret anything. I look forward and I have full faith in the current presidency to continue the dream and the steady flow of the 3252. Regrets? None. Because it's, we're all learning as we go. We're all winging it. Like, it is what it is. Like, we built a nonprofit. Now we're moving forward from it. And no, I don't, I can't think of any regrets because everything I did was either a calculated move or stuff that I can't control. But my job was to help keep things steady, help make sure the ship doesn't um, sink. And I made many friendships, great bonds. I fell in love with Mauricio through the presidency. So, no, just amazing takeaways. Lots of gray hairs that are earned. So many hours put into it. I'm gaining back a lot of family time now, now that I'm out. So no, no regrets. Just nothing but love and appreciation for the journey, good or bad. Like it was, it's all part of the journey. So what do you think in looking back were your greatest accomplishments? If someone said, I want three bullet points of the things that transpired that you feel were the most positive things during your tenure. What do you think are are the Jimmy Lopez moments? Honestly, I don't think that's a question for me. I think it's a question for the council. I think the council should answer that. Like, what did Jimmy and Mauricio do? Because I was only without Mauricio for, I would say, about seven months. And then Cassie stepped in and helped. She came in clutch, and now she's the secretary. But no, it, it, it's not me. It's everybody. Mauricio and I were just the steering the ship. Council decides and does everything. We were just hurting the cats because literally it's what it is, hurting cats because everybody goes everywhere. And no, like my biggest takeaway was falling in love with Mauricio. That was, if I look back, that's my biggest thing because I spent every night talking to him, every morning waking up talking to him. And to me, that's something that I will never forget. And it's one of the biggest takeaways because he helped in the three years that we were president and vice president together. He helped shape me into a better person and into a more patient person and to look at things from different angles that I thought I already did, but his maturity and his way of his outlook on life rubbed off on me and many that if it wasn't for LAFC and Thursday too, I would have never gotten this perspective and never had the privilege to be around Mauricio. I don't think many people know a lot of the details of your relationship with Mo as far as president, vice president. How would you describe the working relationship between the two of you with regards to the, the operations of the 3252? Is there something to that, that that we don't know about how things would go back and forth between the two of you? We never argued. I can tell you that. Some people would always be like, oh, it's like mom and dad. If I would be like, no, you can't do this, X, Y, and Z, like it's it's not part of it. They'll go to Mo and Mo will try to find a way to like sway another way. So it was like a um a parent type of relationship where we can get along, we can see big picture and discuss things. But it was just looking back, it was just it was 
it was a beautiful relationship. Like he, his passing was one of the main reasons why I didn't feel I could continue and run another term. I was just like, even though Cassie stepped in and, and filled and helped a lot, there's no other Mo out there. And I can't see myself continuing. I couldn't. I was like, there's no way I could continue being president for another term without Mo. Like the chemistry we have, the way we we bounced off each other and the way we helped the community and the culture. Like we were there. Like Mo, Mo is the guy that if you were to call him at two in the morning, be like, hey, I'm stranded. He's there. And just, gosh, thinking back about the man, he's just a beautiful, beautiful person. Sorry, I'm on a tangent. It just. No, uh, uh, rest in peace, Mo. We love you. Why don't we go ahead and, and transition to a slightly lighter subject? You are adorned in said piece of clothing as we speak right now. It is the iconic Jimmy look. How did you fall in love with the hat? The hat, it came about my freshman year of college. I got tired of wearing baseball caps. Um, back in the early 90s when taggers were a big thing, like we would always have the cap and then the bill was cracked in the middle. And um, I started dressing nicer. I, I fell in love with the mod culture and I was just like, I can wear a baseball cap with this nice clothing. And then I saw the hat at, I don't know what store it was. It was like an old man store. I put it on. I was just like, just something about it. I was just like, ooh, I feel fresh. Never took it off. So that's no, no. I, I mean, literally you. never taken it off. I don't think I've ever seen you without it on. And in like the one brief moment, I think at a tailgate, someone like reached up and took the hat off your head. It was like, it was awkward. I was like, no, put the hat back on. You look weird. Like I can't, I can't like, I just can't even picture you without the hat. It is. It is so much a part of you. Um, you also touched on another subject a little earlier, and I think it's fascinating that that's how this comes back around. I wasn't asking about the sideburns. Did that, was that did that coincide with the hat, or does that come after? Or did you already have those? Sideburns came in when I went through puberty, and my uncles had them, and it was just one of those things that I I just always liked them, and I grew them out, and then one, I've only gone once without them. Barber said I was going to trim them, literally cut them off. I was like, this is terrible, but I'm having a Mexican background. I'm super hairy. They grew back like in two weeks. So um, no, I just love them. My mom is a huge Elvis fan. So Elvis had them. I just always grew up with men with sideburns. And I was like, all right, I, I want sideburns and I got them. So that was part of the look before the hat and the glasses. Oh yeah. The glasses came in in 09. I was driving from a concert. I remember we, actually I played at the Whiskey Go-Go. I was driving home and I was like, I can't really see. So then I was like, I was like, I need glasses now. So those came in later. Sideburns came in when I was like 15. Hat, um, freshman year of college. So that's like, what, 18? So the look when I was 18 was completed. I love the answer. When did the chops come in? They came in during puberty. That I, I about fell out of my chair. It was hilarious, sir. Hats off to that. We, we got to at least shed some light on that joke because it deserves a little room to breathe. You touched on it earlier in that, your entire encounter with Black Army and finding Chivas USA happened at the happiest place on earth. We know that you and your family and your kids are somewhat Disney obsessed, to put it lightly. So how does Disneyland become such an obsession for you? Is it just through your kids or is this something you've had your whole life? Oh, this is going to get deep. Disneyland has always been there for me. I didn't have the easiest upbringing. I grew up very poor, but my mom always found a way to make us, to take us to Disneyland once a year. And to me, that was just huge because I knew what it took to get to it. 
And so that was really, really like always hit me. Like we're going to do something as a family. I love this. And then it got to the point where she couldn't afford to take all of us. So she would send my sister and I together. My, and then my younger siblings started coming also because I'm a middle child. And then once I got a full-time job, I got my own Disney pass and had a pass up until COVID hit. So last year was the only year without a Disney pass. My kids, when I went through my divorce with my ex-wife, um, Cassie's a stepmom. So it was just the place where I could just go and forget about everything. Like I'm sad, I'm upset. I'm gonna go to Disneyland, walk around, meet new people. I, I made it a point to go into Disneyland and walk out with a new friend. I always did it. I just love meeting new people. I love conversation, like just getting to know somebody. I don't care if they want to know about me. I just like people. I like hearing people's journey. And that was what Disneyland gave to me. I just would sit there. I would, after class, I would take the bus down, do my homework, walk around. And my friends that were lazy and didn't want to do the morning classes would go in the evening. And then we'd all just have dinner right back home together. And then Cassie and I, our relationship blossomed at Disneyland because she lived in Costa Mesa at the time. I lived in La Habra. Disneyland was in the middle. So three times a week, we'd meet up at Disneyland. And just that was the first year of our relationship was just meeting up at Disneyland, getting to know each other. And now we're married. All right. So real quick, what's your favorite Disney character? Favorite Disney character? I don't have a favorite character. I do have a favorite movie, and that's The Lion King. That just comes because it was... Uh, it came out in 94. I was in fourth grade. My sister had just moved out of our household and she was my best friend. And that was just that year that we saw it at the drive-in four times, movie theater three times. We just were obsessed with the movie together. She took me to Disneyland. We saw the Lion King parade. And to me, that was just like a great memory of the bond I have with my sister. She's like my favorite person. So yeah, that was just the Lion King. So favorite character? No, because I like things from every character. They all have their different characteristics. Favorite ride would be Jungle Cruise because I love to imagine that I'm on my Amazon. Sometimes I tune out and just make my own scenarios in my head. How do you feel about Marvel and Star Wars joining Disney? In the beginning, I was like, ooh, why? But walking into Star Wars land, it's just crazy. My daughter put it the best. Um, we took them Saturday because uh, Riley's turning 12 this coming Saturday. Miles turned nine last Saturday. And uh, the two years apart, but they were almost going to be born the same day. We were walking around. That was their first time. And Riley was like, Dad, I don't even feel like I'm at Disneyland anymore. They just did it so well that I was like, I can't hate. I want to dislike it, but I can't. Plus, I love Star Wars. Marvel, I haven't gone down to see, is it called Marvel Land? I don't know what, what the title is. Or Adventure Camp, Avengers Campus. I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really say much. Am I excited for it? No. But I might like it. We'll see. Yeah, Disneyland's such an amazing place. For anyone who grew up in the Southland, I think we all have so many memories there. Back when, you know, Southern California residents used to be able to get in for less than 20 bucks. I know that might date myself, um, you know, for an e-ticket ride back in the day. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those places that love Disney or hate Disney. If you grew up in Southern California, you all have those Disneyland memories. And it was integral for all of us. But I love to see how it continues to be such a poignant part of your life. You also touched on music, and I know music is a huge, huge part of your life as well, too. Concerts, listening, and of course, playing music. So why don't you take us a little bit through your career as a musician? Music was something that's always been in my household. My mom plays the accordion. She is a singer, and I just grew up around it. Like, I just love it. And we couldn't afford any instruments. So then in high school, when I had finally got a job, I bought like a, the cheapest guitar I could find. Started playing it a little bit, learned a few chords. And then 
sitting around and some of my friends are like, oh, let's do the talent show. And we're like, all right, let's start a band. And we each got assigned something without not knowing how to play anything. And they made me the singer. So I joined choir and then did that. And it was actually pretty fun. And then we're like, all right, let's make goals. And we made goals and we, we achieved every goal. Um, it was play the talent show and then play a, a chain reaction because La Habra and Anaheim's like right there. And then from there, it's like record an album. And then that was it. And then I was like, oh, one tour. And then we're done. We don't, we don't care what else happens. Then we got signed to a little uh, indie label, uh, toured the country for quite a few years and went down to Mexico. And we were going to go to Europe, but I'm straight edge. And the rest of the band uh, got heavily into drugs where I couldn't be around that anymore. Like being on the road so much, people that are either on pills or drunk on the time, to me, I just, I just couldn't do it. So I quit and there went the European tour and that was the end of that. And then I found uh, Black Army, filled the void and then LAFC. So being the compost stand is like being on stage at a concert. So yeah, it was, it was good times. So what was the name of the band? What style of music did you guys play? And, and do you still play or sing? Um, I sing in the shower. I have two guitars. I haven't picked them up in years. I should. I should have during COVID, but didn't. The name of the band, it's kind of embarrassing now, but it was when the whole Screamo thing was a thing. It was called Strengths Behind Tears. It was a good time. We released an EP and then a full length and just toured with that. So it was, it was, it was fun. Good times. How it shaped me who I am today because I learned a lot about culture and I learned that there's nothing like Southern California in the world. All right. So why don't we go ahead and pull it back to your new position? As we have discussed previously on the show, you've stepped away from the 3252 and Black Army and have now taken a position uh, working for Uncle Rich in the brand and community side of LAFC. So why don't you go ahead and take us through what a transition that was for you and what your role as a new manager of brand and community has been like and is going to be. In a nutshell, my job is to be the bridge between the supporters and the front office and make sure the flow is steady and makes it work. That's my number one job. But on top of that, I am on the uh, marketing team with Rich and uh, grassroots with Pat. So it's just things that I love. I love community service. I love the supporter culture and I love LASC. So it's literally my dream job. First week was rough. The onboarding and just being online all day, I had a crazy migraine. But now that I'm getting a hang of it, I'm just like, dude, this is amazing. It's weird being at home a lot, but I'm working nonstop at home. So when I do get to go to the bank and I do get to do events, I'm just like, oh yes, a break from the computer. But no, it, it's amazing. My biggest takeaway is seeing how the other side works and how much red tape there is and how much how many people you have to go through to ask for something and nothing but respect for the stadium ops. They, the ones that put up the compost stands and take care of the pitch and set up the concerts, tear them down. It's like 24 seven. And I don't know how they do it. And it's seeing what the calendar is like. I'm just like, wow, I hope you're making six figures because you're doing way more than most of us. Once you get a chance to view how it works from the inside, any bureaucracy, you know, you just, uh, how thoroughly departmental it all becomes, right? So what are some of your goals within this role that you would like to see happen? Is there a particular cross-section of community that you would like to get organized and involved in? Is there a goal that you have personally set for yourself in this role? Um, no set goal. My thing is, as long as the 3052 stays strong and continues to grow, I feel like I'm doing my job because I am helping with any way I can 
with the front office to keep the 352 happy because it could fall apart as easy as it was built. Look at um, Chicago. Section Section 8 was like the, the, the biggest thing out there. They had a falling out their front office. Look where they're at now. So my biggest goal, I guess I would say, is to prevent that from happening because uh, 3052 and LAC in my eyes are one and the same. Well, we know the 3252 are in the capable hands of Casey and Sujin, our new president, vice president. And certainly they are more than up to the task of doing the job and helped in large part by a path that folks like yourself paved for them. So hats off to you and thank you for everything you've done to help build this culture in LAFC and really looking forward to what you can do in order to bridge that gap between front office and supporters. Not that it's a tenuous relationship at all. The LAFC front office and the 3252 have always got along swimmingly, but knowing a gentleman like yourself is going to be in that role, acting as the liaison between supporters and front office only gives me more confidence that we can learn from the mistakes of other clubs and build from it. So thank you for all you did to help build this and all you're doing to help keep it together going forward. With that, we do want to go ahead and and escalate to our final question in the evening. You've been very generous with your time today, sir. Thank you for, for, for joining us for multiple segments this evening. But Mr. John Adams of the 3252, before we go ahead and send you packing, we, we do want to know, and that is, what does shoulder-to-shoulder mean to Jimmy Lopez? Shoulder-to-shoulder to me literally means community. It just comes down to straight community. Because if you lean on each other, your community's there. You help build a community and you help, re- you help reinforce community by standing shoulder-to-shoulder. That's what it is to me. And LAC is a community, so it's all tied together. Full circle. Well, sir, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Of course, you guys know our guest this evening, Mr. Jimmy Lopez, manager of Branded Community at LAFC, and of course, former president of the 3252. We would also like to thank Jamin Moore for joining us once again as our opponent correspondent from Quake's Epicenter and American Soccer Analysis. You can follow them at Analysis Evolved or his outlet with the San Jose Earthquakes, Quake's Epicenter at Quakes Epicenter, and he can be followed personally at J Moore Quakes. You can, of course, follow Jimmy at LAFC. So I think that's the easiest way to find out what's going on with the club. We thank you, sir, for coming on and representing this evening. So much thanks to Jamin and Jimmy. On behalf of myself, Christian, Chris, and the legend sound engineer, Wilton, we'd like to thank you all for listening to episode 105. Take us home, Sticks. Shoulder to shoulder. Together, this our culture. Feel the force of a supernova. Stay fly in that FC dorsum. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's Koreatown Liddy. Cape us so mommy about to drop her fifth. They want me to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bitch.